0: Today's episode is brought to you by Casper, where you can get an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price. Get $50 off your order when you go to casper.com slash best and use the offer code best at checkout. And Squarespace. Squarespace is the easiest way to create a beautiful website, blog, or online store for you and your ideas. Squarespace features an elegant interface, beautiful templates, and incredible 24-7 customer support. Start building your website today at squarespace.com. Enter the offer code LEFT at checkout to get 10 Off Squarespace, build it beautiful. And now, welcome to the award winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from the Green News Report, Democracy Now!, The Young Turks on the Media, and activism from 350.org.
1: It seemed like it would never happen. It seemed like 200 nations could never come together to agree on anything, much less agree unanimously to curb greenhouse gases that cause global warming. Is it my imagination, or is this an historic moment?
2: Oh, it's definitely historic, and of course, what happens after will determine just how historic. And you're right, nearly 200 nations voted unanimously on Saturday for the landmark Paris Agreement. It's a framework for global action over coming decades to cut the greenhouse gas emissions that cause dangerous global warming. At the White House, President Obama acknowledged that the accord by itself won't solve climate change, but he called it a turning point. Point in world history.
3: This agreement represents the best chance we've had to save the one planet that we've got. This agreement
0: sends a powerful signal that the world is firmly committed to a low-carbon future. And that has the potential to unleash investment and innovation in clean energy at a scale we have never seen before. So I believe this moment can be a turning point for the world.
2: So what was agreed to? For the first time ever, all countries commit to limit global temperatures to quote, well below a threshold of two degrees Celsius above pre-industrial times and to pursue efforts aiming for 1.5 degrees Celsius. That's a target that was thought to be politically impossible just weeks ago. So while a target of 1.5 degrees Celsius is still dangerous, it is less risky than two degrees Celsius and it will still be very challenging to meet. Countries agreed to peak emissions as soon as possible, ramping down to zero carbon emissions by the end of the century, and all nations have agreed to report on their progress every five years and to ratchet up their targets according to their capabilities. Rich nations will assist with financing, mobilizing private investment, and also contributing at least $100 billion to a global climate fund to help developing nations build renewable energy infrastructure and to prepare for the consequences of climate change. The deal, once ratified, is legally binding, but the targets themselves are not. That was an incentive to be ambitious without fear of punishment should countries fall short. And for the U.S., voluntary avoids review by the U.S. Senate.
1: So- So this treaty moves forward with the signature of the president with or without the US Senate, with or without the climate change deniers that now run Congress.
2: That's exactly right. In Paris, Secretary of State John Kerry called on the private sector to step up with innovation.
4: We are sending literally a critical message to the global marketplace. Because of 186 nations saying to global business in one loud voice, We need to move in this direction, and that will move investment.
2: According to climate scientist Michael Mann, author of the famous hockey stick graph on the broadcast this week, now the hard work really begins.
4: It's
5: difficult to actually understate the significance of this agreement. I think we are witnessing the end of the age of fossil fuels and the beginning of a new age of uh, a clean global energy economy. There's no question it's going to require dramatic action um uh, This is just the beginning. The hard work is ahead. Uh, it is doable. Um, it's physically possible, and I think there's evidence that we are starting to garner uh, the will.
1: Michael Mann told me he was very optimistic about the future, optimistic, happy, obviously, about this agreement, but it's still a question of political will, he points out. And right now, in this country, in the middle of a presidential election, when you have every single Republican candidate is a climate change denier. Uh, all I can say is it's a good thing that this agreement does not count on the Republicans to move forward. Instead, we count on the rest of the world for sanity, apparently.
2: And keep in mind that because it's voluntary, the next president could very well dismantle it. This is not just a crossroads for this country, this is a crossroads for the world.
1: Well, a path, as they say, is built one stone at a time. One great big stone was laid in this path in paris after 21 years of work let's see if we can build on it from here
6: former top climate scientist James Hansen. In 1988, Dr. Hansen first warned about the dangers of climate change when he testified before Congress. He would go on to become the nation's most influential climate scientist. This year, he's making his first appearance at a UN climate summit. He's come to Paris to warn world leaders that they're on the wrong track to prevent dangerous global warming. James Hansen joins us now, the director of climate science at Columbia University's Earth Institute. Welcome back to Democracy Now! It's great to have you Thanks for us. having me. So uh, you wrote a piece in The Guardian um, saying we're at the point now where temperatures are hitting the one centigrade mark. You said the U.N. is on the wrong track with plans to limit global warming to two degrees Celsius.
7: Yeah, absolutely. I, this is really a total fraud. You know, there's no. we're not going to reduce emissions as long as we let fossil fuels be the cheapest form of energy. There are lots of countries that want to lift their people out of poverty, and of course they should do that. But everybody would be better off if the price of fossil fuels was honest. It should include its cost to society.
6: So what is the plan here? And you're coming in, interestingly, as an outsider. You've never been here before.
7: Yeah. Which gives
6: you an interesting perspective.
7: Remarkably, it's not much different than uh, Kyoto, except that here they're not even requiring any connection among the different countries. They're just saying, well, each country, tell us what you're going to do to reduce your emissions. Um, And at the same time... They allow fossil fuels to be the cheapest energy, and appear to be the cheapest energy. Of course, they're not really if you include their cost to society, and that's what we should do. We should add a rising fee to uh, the carbon, uh, the fossil fuel price. It would be very easy to do at the domestic mine or port of entry. A very small number of places but we're, we're uh, instead we're just saying well let's try harder we will uh, you know we'll give you a plan we're going to reduce our emissions although some countries are not good what did you make that. of
6: president obama's speech on monday here at the u.n climate summit
7: well we have to decide are are these people stupid or, or are they just uninformed are they badly advised i think that he really believes he's doing something you know, he wants to have a legacy, a, a, a legacy having done something in the climate problem. But what he's proposing is totally ineffectual. I mean, there are some small things that are talked about here. You know, the fact that they may have a fund for investment, invest more in in uh, clean energies. Uh, but these are these are minor things. As long as fossil fuels are dirt cheap. People will keep burning them.
6: So why don't you talk, Dr. James Hansen, about what you're endorsing, a carbon tax? What yeah. does it mean? What does it look yeah, like? Yeah,
7: it should be an across the board carbon fee. And in a democracy, it's going to it should the money should be given to the public. Just give an equal amount to every you collect the money from the fossil fuel companies. The rate would go up over time, but the money should be distributed one hundred percent to the public, an equal amount to every legal resident.
6: Is that, Alaska an example of this?
7: Well, Alaska is giving uh, fossil fuel money to the public, and of course they like that. So it's a sort of it. it shows how much the public does like getting a monthly check. But uh, what this would do, those people who do better than average in limiting their fossil fuel use would make money. Wealthy people, people who fly around the world a lot and have big houses, they would pay more in increased prices than they would get in their monthly dividend.
6: Explain what you mean.
7: Well, because uh, we're we're giving all of the money. You collect money from fossil fuel companies and you distribute it equally to all residents. So the one who does better than average in limiting his fossil fuel use will get more in the dividend than he pays in increased
6: prices. And how do you know what their fossil fuel use is?
7: Well, is they don't have to. Nobody has to think about this. They know they will just look at prices. Of course, the the price at the pump is obvious, and uh, the electricity bill will be obvious. It, this will this will move uh, industry and businesses to develop. No carbon and low carbon uh, energies and products that use little fossil fuels. In fact, the economic study shows that in the United States, after 10 years, emissions would be reduced 30 percent because you've got the economy forcing you in the right direction. But as long as you just leave fossil fuels cheap. You're not going to fundamentally change things.
8: It's
6: not only that fossil fuels are kept cheap. the Not only U.S. government, governments around the world subsidize yeah. the fossil fuel industry yeah. far more yeah. than any kind of renewables.
7: Yeah, well, that's right. On a total basis, um, per unit energy, they're subsidizing renewables more. But that's okay. We shouldn't be subsidizing any of them. Let this carbon price ride that will favor renewables it will favor energy efficiency it will favor nuclear power it will favor anything that is carbon free that's the way we should do it and that's the way conservatives would accept it this is a revenue neutral approach which does not make the government bigger and i've talked to some leading conservatives and who understand that this is not a hoax the climate change is not a hoax and they are are willing to accept this concept of a revenue-neutral carbon fee.
6: Dr. James Hansen, would you like to weigh in on the presidential election in the United States on the issue of climate change? I believe Donald Trump said he wouldn't even see the Pope because of his views on climate change. Uh, But it's not only Donald Trump, the Republicans in Congress, and then go to the Democrats.
7: Yeah, well, there's some nutcases who claim that it's all a hoax, and that's absurd. Uh, and I think most of the public recognizes that. You may get a, a fraction of one party that is, uh, that likes that point of view, but um, the majority of the public realizes that's nonsense. But I haven't seen any uh, candidate, liberal or conservative, who is proposing what is actually needed, and that's making the price of fossil fuels honest, but not taking the money to make the government bigger, instead give it to the public.
6: What about the Democrats?
7: I was saying, I haven't seen any uh, politician, Democrat or Republican, who has proposed a revenue-neutral carbon fee. There's an organization, Citizens Climate Lobby, which has been doubling in size each year the last several years, which is beginning to be heard. In fact, uh Democrats, uh, Bernie Sanders and uh, Barbara Boxer proposed a bill that was basically a fee and dividend except the government was going to take 40% of the money. And that makes it uh, it's not going to work. I mean, first of all, conservatives are never going to accept that. Uh, That makes it a tax. And uh, a tax depresses the economy. A carbon fee and dividend actually spurs the economy. Because there is some income redistribution Distribution. The low-income people will tend to have a better chance to come out ahead in this case, and they tend to spend the money when they get their dividend. Dr.
6: James Hansen, you talked about the potential collapse of the West Antarctic ice sheet. What would that mean?
7: Well, that would mean several meters of sea level rise. That's the biggest threat that climate change has in store for us, because it would mean that all coastal cities would become dysfunctional, and the economic consequences of that are incalculable. And uh, the number of uh, refugees that you would have—hundred million people in Bangladesh, which most of them would be have to find some place to go. So it, it's uh, it's something. It's hard to imagine how we can have a a governable world if we let The Antarctic ice sheet collapse.
6: The coastal cities, for example, in the United States, if climate change isn't curbed, what would happen?
7: Well, just just look at uh, New York City, for example. If you had a sea level rise of several meters, you cannot protect these cities. It's not. It's simply not practical. What about building
6: high sea walls?
7: Uh, Well, for for a very small area, you may be able to do that, but. Then, still, when you get storms, you'll get uh, water overthrown over the seawalls. It's just not practical. We need to keep a sea level relatively stable, or we have economic consequences. And how do you do that? You do that by phasing down emissions rapidly, at least a few percent per year. And the only way that will happen is if we have uh, a carbon fee, because otherwise... You know, somebody's going to keep burning it. These countries are, you know, saying, okay, we're going to reduce our emissions 30%. But what does that do? When the price remains cheap, somebody else will burn it. That just makes the price even cheaper if, the, if it's less dear. So you have to make the fossil fuel price honest.
6: So you've been preaching about climate change, speaking about climate change, getting arrested around climate change now for decades. Um, Talk about the science back, what, in 1988 and where it is today. And that brings me to all the... exposés that both the Los Angeles Times and Inside Climate News have done around Exxon, doing brilliant research decades ago, and then covering it up. You're at the Earth Institute at Columbia. Uh, ExxonMobil threatening Columbia University saying that the research that is done around this, uh, wrote a letter to Lee Bollinger, the president of Columbia um, uh, is misleading, is wrong and threatening the money they've given to Columbia
7: Yeah, yeah. worse than that uh, I remember writing letters complaining about the fact that ExxonMobil was funding uh, changes to textbooks um, in uh, grade school and junior high school to make it sound Sound like we didn't understand climate change, and we didn't. Uh, there was no evidence uh, that humans were causing climate change. So, yeah, that sounds like uh, criminal activity to me. But now. Uh, uh, most of the captains of industry actually say they would like to be part of the solution. They have children and grandchildren too. So, if our government would give them the incentives to do that by putting a rising fee on carbon, they would. They would love to be part of the solution. I think that's true for most. Uh, Captains of industry, as I call them. But our governments are not doing that. So I really blame it on our governments. They pretend that they're doing something like what they're doing here. This is a fraud they're not they should be smart enough to understand that the policies that they're proposing here are not going to make a significant reduction in global emissions
6: in our final thirty seconds you got arrested over the keystone XL pipeline ultimately it was torpedoed by president obama Um, what do you think needs to happen now that was grassroots action that was sustained over a period of years
7: yeah, So, th- and and that's useful, but only if we get a price on carbon because that's the only way we'll keep that in the ground is with a rising fee on carbon so that we get other energies to replace the fossil fuels. So people should really, we need grassroots support, and now people have to actually understand what's needed because the leaders, you know, you would think you just tell them we want to solve the problem. That's not enough. You've actually got to tell them what to do.
0: This program is sponsored by Casper. They're an online retailer of high-quality memory foam mattresses who are revolutionizing the industry by cutting the cost of dealing with resellers and showrooms and then passing those savings on to the consumer. Mattresses can often cost over $1,500, but Casper mattresses cost between $500 for a twin-size mattress and only up to $950 for a king size. And they're not just at a shockingly fair price, though. They're high-quality, obsessively engineered mattresses made in America using both latex and memory foam technologies to achieve just the right sink and bounce for better nights and brighter days. If ordering a mattress on the internet sounds odd to you, fear not. They have a risk free trial and return policy. You can try sleeping on a Casper for a hundred days with free delivery and painless returns. And to help you out even more, you can get $50 off your order by going to casper.com slash best and using the offer code best at checkout. Terms and conditions apply. That's casper.com slash best and use the offer code best at checkout for $50 off your order and to let them know that you're supporting this show at the same time.
9: We had climate talks in Paris, and it has reached a conclusion. This Saturday, they came out with an agreement, 31-page uh, report, as to the action they're going to take on climate change. Uh, a lot of the leaders were very bullish on it, including the leader of France, Francois Hollande. He said, quote, the decisive deal for the planet is here. Wow, that is strong language. So let's find out what's in it. Let's go to a report from the Post. Uh, for the first time, rich and poor countries across the world have agreed to take steps to limit and adapt to climate change, From reducing their emissions of carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases to helping one another adapt to rising seas, devastating droughts, food shortages, and other impacts of global warming. Well, that's a great start. So this is the first time they've got all the countries to agree. In fact, let me give you specifics about that. Nearly 190 countries representing 96% of global emissions have submitted intended nationally determined contributions, a significant improvement compared to the Kyoto Protocol's coverage, of 14% of global emissions. So that is terrific. They're also uh, very clear about what the real problem is. They explain that climate change represents an urgent and potentially irreversible threat to human societies and the planet and requires the widest possible cooperation by all countries. This is very heartening to see that they have very clear language in this and everyone is participating now, more details uh, as to how they're going to take action. The final agreement, which spans 31 pages, sets a cap on global warming at well below 2 degrees Celsius, above pre-industrial levels. Any any great, greater rise, scientists have warned, could trigger catastrophic climate change. The text also adds an aspirational commitment to aim for even greater reductions, enough to limit warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius, and thereby help protect low-lying nations most threatened by sea level rise. Now, that all sounds very, very good. There is a however coming up, and it's this. The current set of emissions reduction pledges submitted by participating countries would only limit global warming to roughly 2.7 degrees Celsius, leaving a substantial gap. So even though they have good aspirations in this agreement, a lot of people are concerned that in reality, the numbers that they put in there gets us to 2.7 degrees uh, and above uh, what, what we need here, and two degrees scientists have said is the max. Well, if that were that far above the max, obviously that is a point of concern. Uh, now, more good news: rich countries have been called to provide $100 billion a year to support poor countries in their transitions to clean energy and their measures to adapt to climate change. Now, part of the reason that you need that is that uh, going to clean energy requires a bigger investment. But if the country is poor, they have trouble mustering up that initial investment to go towards solar, solar energy, wind energy, et cetera. Uh, plus, uh, oftentimes the poor countries are the most affected by climate change because they get hit with severe storms, often uh, bigger either droughts, floods, uh, et cetera, in terms of the weather events. So there's at least... A little bit of parity here where the richer countries are saying, hey, we're causing most of the climate change, so we're going to help ameliorate some of the effects of that for the poorer countries, and we're going to help them get to cleaner energy as well. There's a lot of good there, but there are a lot of environmental activists who are a little concerned. Bill McKibben, uh, who's a co-founder of 350.org, who's one of the guys who helped defeat the Keystone XL pipeline here in the U.S., said this agreement won't save the planet, not even close. But it's possible that it saves the chance of saving the planet if movements push even harder from here on out. Michael Mann, uh, who is a legendary uh, scientist in this arena, says the global commitments get us, quote, roughly halfway. And then James Hansen, a former NASA scientist, another legendary uh, scientist, is much harsher. He says it's a fraud, really, a fake. It's just bullshit for them to say we'll have... 2C warming target, then try to do a little better every five years. It's just worthless words. Uh, he continues to say, there is no action, just promises. As long as fossil fuels appear to be the cheapest fuels out there, they will be continue to be burned. Now, he goes on to explain it. He said, look, still the fossil fuels are the cheapest. If you put a significant tax or a fee on those fossil fuels, well, they will no longer be the cheapest and you would have a real effect. But right now, uh, There is no significant push in that direction. And he's saying, we can't get above that two degrees Celsius mark that we've been talking about. We weren't kidding about that. That is a real number, and it's going to have real devastating consequences. So we've got to act quicker. So that's his take on it. Uh, Now, Senator Bernie Sanders weighed in, obviously running for president here in the U.S. He says, while this is a step forward, it goes nowhere near far enough. The planet is in crisis. We need bold action in the very near future, and this does not provide that. He goes on to say that the Republicans here in the United States, of course, are uh, are uh, working with the fossil fuel industry and blocking all change, which we'll get to in a second. But there you saw Hillary Clinton also weighed in. She's also running for president on the Democratic side. She called it a historic step forward. She's, so she's a lot more bullish than Senator Sanders is. Uh, and now finally we go to the Republican reaction, and of course this is going to be good. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell Uh, of Kentucky, said Obama is, quote, making promises he can't keep and should remember that the agreement is subject to being shredded in 13 months. In other words, if you elect a Republican, all this is for naught. We're not going to do any of it. So the whole world agreed, 190 countries agreed. Who cares? We're Republicans. And we, uh, as the United States of America, are now signing on to this, an international commitment? We don't care at all. We're going to shred it. So that's what the Republicans in America believe. Bernie Sanders is right, that they work for the oil companies. They get private donations from oil companies to fund their campaigns. 95% of the time, the guy with more money wins the election because they use that money to buy deceiving political ads, So that's which is what Mitch McConnell did in Kentucky recently. He gets a ton of money from the fossil fuel industry, not just oil companies but coal companies, and he works for them. Isn't that amazing? If you don't live in America, it's a little hard to believe. We have legalized bribery in this country. <laughs> Insanity. And not only do they get the bribery in the form of campaign donations and independent expenditures to make sure they could win the race, uh, if uh, at some point they'd like to retire, they immediately get hired by one of these lobbies. And then they get direct cash. Legalized bribery. Insanity. Now, luckily, the Democrats do not agree President Obama and Senator Kerry, our Secretary of State, pushed this uh, forward, and they believe it's historic as well. Now, it's hard to know who's right about this. I know the Republicans aren't right that we need to shred it, but uh, is Bernie Sanders, James Hansen right, the critics, or uh, are the people that are enthused about it right? Well, I go to Robert Stevens here, Harvard Environmental Economics Program Director, and I think he had a really good point. He said, this is a broad foundation for meaningful progress. Anyone who suggests... This is a success or a failure is only speaking based on ideology, not reality. Only ten to twenty years from now, when we look at the implementation of all this, will we really know? So, now of course that seems wise. On the other hand, uh, you know, uh, James Hansen might be right. We don't have ten to twenty years to see how it turns out. Uh, that bolder action today would have been better. So I, I, I'm, I'm split. I agree, bolder action would have been better, no question about it. But it is not an easy task to get 190 countries to agree. Countries that oftentimes disagree wildly on different things. Russia, U.S., Arab countries, China, you name it, Europe, they all agreed. So it is a step forward. It is a step forward. How much of a difference it makes, only time will tell.
10: Media outlets from NBC to Mother Jones have called the Paris climate change deal landmark and historic. Obama declared it a turning point for the world. But many climate change activists, like Bill McKibben, founder of 350.org, decry the deal as woefully insufficient. James Hansen, the NASA scientist who drew attention to climate change in 1988, called the deal a fraud. Clarity is hard to find amid all the conflicting commentary, but we're going to try. Andrew Revkin has been reporting on climate change for more than three decades. He writes the New York Times blog dot earth. Thanks for coming on, Andy. Great to be with you. And Jonathan Katz covered the talks in Paris for the New Republic. Hi, Jonathan. Hey. How is it covered in the U.S., aside from the general confusion that I cited in the intro?
11: This is Jonathan. Every day when I would come home from Le Bourget, I would kind of check in on social media and see, like, oh, I I wonder what people back in the States are are saying about this. And, of course, they were saying basically nothing. Everybody was talking about Donald Trump. They were talking about the shootings in San Bernardino. They were talking about ISIS. There were very, very few people who were talking about the climate conference.
10: Andy, when the deal was finished, it did get a lot of coverage, but mostly I saw it covered as as a political issue.
5: It is covered that way in large part because the news media look for news often through the filter of what we think news looks like. And it's covered as a strategic thing, who wins, who loses, what strategy was used. And those stories are all important, but they do miss that kind of reality of the background forcings on the system, which are changing our planet in ways that are henceforth for actually a millennium's There'll be no new normal coastline. I mean, to me, as I think I told you on this show about 10 years ago, that's breaking news.
10: (laughs) But that's not what we hear. We see things more like, uh, what does this mean for Obama's legacy?
5: This is Jonathan again. It
11: was sort of the usual suspects, but you had people like Jonathan Shade.
10: In New York Magazine.
11: In New York Magazine, exactly, yeah. And Tom Friedman's column in the New York Times was sort of similar, they kind of rushed out to show that this was a a big win for the Obama administration. It was very much what the State Department was trying to sell and the White House as well, which was basically that this is American leadership and this is Obama who's come in and he's making this deal happen. And the thing that that really missed was any kind of real discussion about what exactly it was that the United States was trying to accomplish.
10: Because it's still such a catchy issue in the U.S., this whole climate change thing, do you think that led the mainstream press to go easier on this deal than they otherwise might have? Yeah, I
11: definitely think there's been a little bit of walking on eggshells in terms of really criticizing the the meat of the deal because people know that in the United States, if you give an inch to the crowd that just essentially wants everybody to stop talking about climate change until we're all living underwater – they'll take it and run with it and try to use it to change the topic as quickly as possible. Because we just have this really messed up debate in this country with basically one half of of the conversation at least trying to cope with reality of climate change and the other side with its head just completely buried in the sand. And so you had a lot of Republican media like the National Review who were trying to blow holes in the deal just so that they could prove that it was a giant waste of time and it was nothing you should pay attention to. But what that missed was any kind of real conversation about what this deal did and didn't do and
5: the reasons that it did and didn't do it.
10: So what does this deal do and not do? Andy?
5: Remember, this is just the thumbnail sketch of a fuller deal that would be um, adopted by 2020. It basically creates a binding process by which countries individually pledge to change course from business as usual on carbon dioxide and these other gases and on deforestation. And the rich countries have firmed up a little bit the language by which they will create a fund that will compensate poor ones for um, climate impacts that are the result of these changes in the system from the warming that's happening. What they've created is an architecture for getting everybody, in a very nudgy, cast Sunstein way, <laughs> uh, getting everybody to move forward. And one of the promising things going forward, and this relates to the media, too, and not just the conventional journalist media, but... The transparency that's imposable on the world now in terms of tracking deforestation rates or how much coal is being used is very promising because it makes this more doable without having kind of a global carbon police. One demonstration of this was that just ahead of these talks, China came out with much more honest numbers for its coal-based emissions, Hmm. and I think that shows you that it's just getting harder to cheat. Think about Volkswagen, you know, they, they cheated for four or five years, but the revelations that led to that came from independent analysis. You know, that's doable on a global scale now more and more, and with, also with remote sensing satellites in terms of things like deforestation. So there is a promising prospect of having progress without a carbon police.
10: So this deal calls for or firmly suggests that 187 countries pledge to cut their emissions... To limit global warming to 2 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. Which people say is impossible to achieve. So is this purely symbolic?
11: This is something that people were talking about a lot. The problem was we're already on track to go past that based on the emissions that have already been admitted. And when you add up the individual countries' pledges that are the voluntary part of this agreement, we're going to blow right past that really quickly. So what's the point of even having that language? But The main thing that people were saying that was positive was if at the very least we have this as a goal, then countries can at least... Shame one another or when they're talking to each other in bilateral negotiations, they can say, Hey, look, you agreed to this and we agreed to this and let's both go for this together. And that maybe in some way through some kind of international body English, we might be able to lean closer to that target.
5: <laughs> there are so many fantastical aspects to this whole process. We are not even remotely engaged in the kind of energy push that you would need to decarbonize a world that's still more than 80% dependent on fossil fuels, where the United States, the nuclear power plants that we have are all old and we're not building or designing new ones, where uh, the demand for energy that goes with progress is fundamental and not subject to diplomacy. I wrote a couple years ago about a knife fight between two families in the Himalayas over firewood. And they need any kind of energy more than they need firewood because they've already just depleted the trees of all the low-hanging branches.
10: So how is this a turning point?
5: Because the process has acknowledged this. And there used to be, it used to be literally a magical thinking process. Uh, Kyoto Protocol was magical thinking. In what way? Um, it, it had binding targets and tables, but it had all kinds of loopholes. We now acknowledge that we can't solve this the way we thought we could. You know, This was the first time since covering this since 1988 when I saw not in the treaty diplomacy, but at least in the ancillary announcements, commitments to basic research and development to say, we need more science here, too. We don't know how to do this. And those are all, like, to me, tweaks in the right direction.
10: Now, one reason the agreement isn't legally binding is because the U.S. got everyone to agree to change the word shall to should because requiring accountability could allow the Republicans in Congress to kill it. It seems like these climate deniers yield a disproportionate influence over global climate change policy. Jonathan, did this come up in Paris?
11: Yeah, it was really surprising to me. Basically, the head European climate change negotiator from Spain, Miguel Arias-Canete, gets up and he's answering a question about why this agreement can't actually require cuts to emissions or actually require that the developed countries, the rich countries pay money that they have said or at least vaguely implied that they would pay to help developing countries and seriously poor countries deal with the effects of climate change. And his answer was Congress, the Senate, and the Republican Party. Big Spanish dude with a white beard who's standing up in front of the room and and blaming the Republicans for this. And I have a feeling that to a certain extent that might have been a little bit oversold. U.S. presidential administrations in general don't really need any help not wanting to be bound to international accountability. But nonetheless, the specter of the Republican Party was haunting Europe (laughs) across this entire conversation.
5: I wrote a piece earlier in the year called uh, No Red and Blue States When It Comes to Renewable Energy Progress and Even Regulating Carbon Dioxide as a Pollutant. This was based on Yale and Utah State study. State by state, they came out with a map of the country's attitudes on putting more federal investment into renewable energy research and also into restricting carbon dioxide from power plants as a pollutant. And there's no red and blue. That whole map that we live by in political reporting goes away when you ask those kinds of questions. By making it all about your views on the severity of global warming, that enables the polarization of an issue where they're actually behind the scenes is a lot of common thinking.
10: So what about the polls that suggest... A large percentage of Americans don't believe in climate change.
5: Those polls, don't get me started. The only poll that matters, both in terms of politics and, you know, how many people are reading these stories that we're all writing, are how salient is global warming to you? The ones that just ask you, what worries you? Pause. Almost everybody fills in that blank with the economy, healthcare, you know, getting my kids to school, and climate change perpetually since the 80s has not budged really and it's
11: There is something really interesting, though, and you've probably seen the same thing, Andy, is that there is a shift that is going on even in in the rhetoric of very senior people in in the Republican Party. Comments that Jeb Bush has made about climate change, even comments that people like Charles Koch have made about climate change. There's more of, of an appreciation that it's real. And they're trying to find other ways to talk about it, basically saying, well, it's not really going to be catastrophic. Or, yeah, it's real and people are affecting it, but that's not the whole story. Or the problems that we're seeing, we're really not going to see until so far down the road that we don't even need to talk about it now. So the upshot for them is still the same, which is basically don't touch the oil industry. But they're starting to have to admit that reality is reality. And I think it's going to be really interesting to see the way that debate changes, even over the course of the coming presidential election and after that.
10: So what's the story that isn't getting told here?
11: The thing that's disappointed me the most about seeing the way that this thing has been covered is the way that this is still treated by most of the press in the United States as being this sort of esoteric side issue. I mean, at the Republican debate in Las Vegas, there wasn't a single question asked on CNN about the Paris talks. The only time that climate change came up at all was for uh, John Kasich of Ohio to make fun of the fact that there was a climate summit at all. He said that it should have been canceled and basically the 33,000 people who came to Paris to talk about this thing should have all switched expertise and started talking about ISIS instead. And then I think at some point, Donald Trump made some kind of weird, dumb joke about it. And that was it. When this is our world, this is the central core issue that people in my generation, I'm 35 years old, for the rest of our lives, this is going to be the most important stuff that we deal with. And yet the coverage just sort of assumes that it's like, oh, yeah, it's this boring thing. And people went to Paris and they ate baguettes and they had this conversation. And now let's talk about ISIS. When really compared to climate change, ISIS is the sideshow. It's really frustrating to me. I I just wish that more people who are paying attention to this would begin to understand that.
5: The media still are essentially reflecting how we as a species, H. sapiens, the sapient aspect of us is still... Largely built around the here and now, meaning things that are local to you. I hope that artists and psychologists and everyone along with engineers and political science students is thinking, I have a role to play here and seeing if there's a way for us to integrate information in ways that give us a longer view of how we act, what we invest in. How can we build a reader who is able to step back and capture the big picture? I don't know. I don't know what the answer is there.
10: You said we have to build a a news consumer that can handle this stuff, but that's just not how the business works.
11: I have good news and bad news. And they're the same thing, which is that this is becoming breaking news. This is happening in real time. For instance, I I just came back from the Caribbean. I was out there talking to farmers, and the farmers are reeling right now from a really, really bad drought. I was in Cuba a couple weeks before that, and the same thing was happening in Cuba as well. And there's nothing more local. There's no more local news than farmers not being able to grow crops because the weather's changed. You can actually go out to places, and you can see the effects on people's day-to-day lives, and... The good and bad news for journalists is that that's going to make telling these stories a lot easier, and it's also going to shift the needle in terms of what public opinion is.
10: Well, thank God for that. (laughs) (laughs) Jonathan, thank you very much. Thank you. Jonathan Katz covered the talks in Paris for The New Republic. And Andrew, thank you very much. It was great to be with you again. Andrew Revkin writes the New York Times blog dot earth.
0: Squarespace is the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional websites and online portfolios. When I started this show, I had to build a website to go with it, uh, but that was way before the days of Squarespace, and it was a brutal and frustrating experience nowadays. You can use one of Squarespace's dozens of beautifully designed templates to get a new website up and running in no time. Whether you need just a single cover page to maybe collect email addresses for an upcoming project, or, you know, a place to put your portfolio online, a full featured website for whatever you want, or even a giant e-commerce site, Squarespace has you covered. And although Squarespace is simple to use, it's also highly functional and constantly improving. So you know that they're always going to grow and change with the times and your needs. All of this and more plus 24-7 support, all starting at an amazingly low eight bucks a month. And you can take an additional 10% off when you sign up by using the offer code left. If you sign up for a full year, you get 10% off the full year as well as a free domain. So try them out today and use the offer code left when you sign up to save yourself some cash and show your support for For this show, Squarespace, build it beautiful.
6: we turn right now to the oil giant ExxonMobil. It's under criminal investigation in New York over claims it lied to the public and investors about the risks of climate change. Now Exxon is fighting back against the journalists who expose how Exxon concealed its own findings dating back to the 1970s that fossil fuels cause global warming, alter the climate, and melt the Arctic ice. Students at Columbia Journalism School collaborated with Los Angeles Times on two of the exposés, Exxon accused the students of producing inaccurate and misleading articles. In its complaint, Exxon also referred to the, quote, numerous and productive relationships ExxonMobil has with Columbia. Exxon's donated nearly $220,000 to the school. On Tuesday, Steve Cole, the dean of the Columbia Journalism School, responded to Exxon's critique written to Columbia's president, after an extensive review, Cole wrote, quote, your letter disputes the substance of the two articles in the number of respects, but consists largely of attacks on the project's journalists. I've concluded your allegations are unsupported by evidence. More than that, I've been troubled to discover you've made serious allegations of professional misconduct in your letter against members of the project, even though you or your media relations colleagues possess email records showing your allegations are false, Cole wrote. Well, our guest, Bill McKibben, co-founder of 350.org, has been following the Exxon Exposés closely. In October, he was arrested after staging a one-man protest at his local Exxon station in Vermont. He held a sign reading, this pump temporarily closed because ExxonMobil lied about climate. Bill McKibben, you're a journalist yourself. Talk about the significance of ExxonMobil writing this letter of complaint to the president of Columbia University, Lee Bollinger, who then turned the letter over to Steve Cole, also a leading journalist, who did an investigation of Columbia Journalism School students. So
12: Exxon is never very subtle, and this was a particularly heavy-handed uh, instance of it. Uh, their letter to Columbia can only be described as thuggish. It carried every kind of implication about how they would uh, you know, do one thing or another to them if they didn't get satisfaction. But I think they might think twice before they do it again. The, the letter that came back from Steve Cole at Columbia was a six-page masterpiece of dissection. Uh, it sort of shows what happens when real reporters go up against PR people. Uh, it was remarkable, Amy. Um, these stories—I mean, this is just Exxon trying to kick up smoke around the edges. There's no problem with the stories; they're they're incredibly powerful, incredibly true, and so salient to where we sit today. If Exxon had told the truth about what it knew 25 years ago, we would not be needing to have Cop 21. We would have. Sometime around COP 3 or 4, really gotten down to work as a planet, and this problem wouldn't be solved yet, but we wouldn't have wasted 25 years in phony debate.
6: And we did an extensive look at this um, uh, uh, on Democracy Now! on the investigation of both Inside Climate News, the Pulitzer Prize winning uh, journalistic organization, and Los Angeles Times, which of course has also won many Pulitzers. Um, But The evidence that they had top scientists, they were deeply concerned about this, doing very good work and saw climate change as real. But then what happened? Well, then they, instead of acting on
12: their knowledge, they instead set up the architecture of denial and disinformation. There was a remarkable piece that came out a study that came out in Nature yesterday uh, documenting the fact that the money from Exxon and the Koch brothers constituted the sort of epicenter of denial. This was uh, one of these big data data analyses that traced the links between thousands of different organizations and newsletters and front groups, and they traced it back to Exxon. That's why the Secretary of State yesterday, John Kerry, in a pretty rare moment uh, in Rolling Stone, really let loose on Exxon and said that it was, if it's, these allegations were true, it was worse than the tobacco industry and a betrayal of everything that it meant to be a responsible corporation.
6: And the significance of the New York State Attorney General Eric Schneiderman launching a criminal probe into ExxonMobil.
12: Well, you can be sure that Exxon's taking it seriously because yesterday they hired uh, one of the most expensive lawyers in the country, uh, Theodore Wells, most recently famous for having written the Deflate Gate report uh, about the New England Patriots uh, and last year's football season. Uh, Theodore Wells from Paul Weiss Rifkin in New York is now... Exxon's, uh, uh, on retainer for Exxon to try and battle these allegations. But good luck to him because the evidence down there in black and white is pretty stunning. Remember. At the best, no one is saying, I mean, the best that anyone's saying is that Exxon was merely morally reprehensible, not outright criminal. That's the best defense that anybody's mounted for them so far.
6: So we're not talking about a civil probe. We're talking about a criminal probe. This could land Exxon officials in jail?
12: Well, who knows? I mean, they haven't said at the moment they're just subpoenaing documents. We're still at the beginning stages of this. And, of course, the great hope is that other attorney generals, Kamala Harris in California, for instance, will, we hope, join in at some point, and that the Department of Justice, 360,000 Americans have petitioned the Department of Justice asking them to investigate Exxon.
6: And on the issue of ExxonMobil writing the letter to the president of Columbia University and it mentioning the amount of money they've given to Columbia, do you see this as an attack on freedom of the press?
12: Oh, I mean, I mean, who knows what precisely they had in mind, but Exxon has attacked the freedom of thought of an entire planet for 25 years. They knew the truth and they hid it. They told people things that they knew not to be true. There's no more devastating attack on the freedom of thought than that.
0: activism portion of today's show now that you're informed and either angry, hopeful, or just confused. Here's what you can do about it. Today's activism break free from fossil fuels via 350.org. The Paris Climate Summit ended in a first of its kind agreement to limit global warming to below two degrees Celsius with an aim of 1.5 degrees and achieve climate neutrality that will require phasing out of fossil fuels in the second half of this century. While organizers with 350.org were hoping for more, they're celebrating a deal that sends what they call a clear signal that it's time to keep fossil fuels. Fuels in the ground, and time for investors to cut their ties with coal, oil, and gas by divesting for good. In order to continue pressuring governments to make good on and possibly even outperform the goals of the Paris Agreement, 350.org and coalition partners, including Greenpeace, are inviting you to join their global wave of resistance this May to keep coal, oil, and gas in the ground. At breakfree2016.org, you can get updates and learn more about how to participate. Plans are coming together and progressing. Quickly, with plenty of ways to get involved before the international actions this spring. There will be public actions such as marches as well as protests with civil disobedience intent on shutting down the world's most dangerous fossil fuel projects while also supporting the most ambitious climate solutions. A map and calendar of actions from May 7th through the 15th are coming together with a vision of tens of thousands of people all over the world rising up at a moment when the effort is not linked to any particular government summit, conference, or Legislation. Activists and organizers will set the terms and demand attention following the hottest year on record as climate change is already having massive impacts on so many communities. From the breakfree2016.org sign up page, quote, We are close to a historic global shift in our energy system. The way we get there is by action that confronts those who are responsible for climate change and takes power back for the people so we can shape the sustainable and just future we need. This is the moment we've been waiting for. Let's seize it, unquote. The segment notes include all of the links to this information, as well as additional resources. And as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the activism tab at bestoftheleft.com. If keeping the planet inhabitable for humans matters to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about 350.org's May action via social media so that others in your network can get involved, too.
13: Can you stand up and be counted?
9: There's a body in a crowd. Put your name on a petition with your signature so proud Can you raise your voice so loud as you stand with head on bow Weather beating on your brow, demanding answers here and now
11: Cause that's how you make a difference in this fickle world of change
6: In what's being described as an historic turning point, nearly 200 nations agreed in Paris Saturday to a global accord to rein in rising greenhouse gas emissions blamed for warming the planet. Under the deal, nations will make voluntary commitments to begin cutting emissions. In addition, the deal provides billions more dollars to help poor nations cope with the transition to a greener economy powered by renewable energy. French Foreign Minister Laurent Fabius announced consensus on the deal had been reached.
10: I now invite the COP to adopt the draft decision entitled Paris Agreement, which features in the document. I'm looking around the room. I see the reaction is positive. I don't hear any objection. The Paris Agreement for the climate is accepted
6: agreement was reached at the conclusion of the two-week UN climate change summit in Paris known as COP21. UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon praised the deal.
4: We are going to have for the first time universal and robust and ambitious climate change agreement. This is the good beginning, decisive turning point in our common efforts to uh, make uh, our lives of, of peoples s- sustainable and prosperous, as well as a healthy planet.
6: Despite the Paris Agreement, many scientists and environmental groups say nations need to be far more ambitious to prevent global temperatures from rising. Current emission reduction pledges put the world on pace to warm by as much as 6.3 degrees Fahrenheit, or 3.5 degrees Celsius, above pre-industrial levels. The globe's temperature has already risen by nearly 1 degree Celsius, and the impact of global warming has been felt across the globe. 2015 is on pace to be the world's hottest year on record. The United States has also been criticized for failing to take more responsibility for causing the climate crisis as the world's largest historic emitter. Greenpeace executive director Kumi Naidu said climate activists will continue to mobilize to push nations to do more to address the climate crisis.
3: This is neither a moment for triumphalism or for despair. We cannot be triumphalistic of the deal that is done here when tens of thousands of lives have been lost already as a result of climate impacts and we're furthermore Tens of thousands of lives on the precipice of survival. Indigenous peoples, people in low-lying states and so on. Neither should it be a uh, message of despair for us in the climate movement. We have won the core argument that climate crisis is serious, it requires urgent action, and we will continue to mobilize from tomorrow to make sure that the end of the fossil fuel era starts today and that we see the transition to 100 percent renewable energy future by no later than 2050.
6: To talk more about the Paris Agreement, we're joined by two guests. George Mambio is a British journalist, and author, a columnist with The Guardian newspaper, author of the 2006 book, Heat, How to Stop the Planet from Burning. His latest piece is headlined, Grand Promises of Paris Climate Deal, Undermined by Squalid Retrenchments. He's joining us from London. And in San Francisco, we're joined by Michael Brune, Executive Director of the Sierra Club. His book? Coming Clean, Breaking America's Addiction to Oil and Coal. Michael, you've just flown in from Paris, as we have. Uh, You were there for the final moments of this Paris Agreement. Your assessment of what close to 200 countries have agreed on?
3: Uh, We do think it's a turning point. What we saw is just about every country in the world made a commitment to either uh, cut their own carbon or to peak uh, the growth in their emissions, and there was also an explicit acknowledgement that what was committed to is not nearly enough, and so there was a, a process that was established to, to take stock of the progress that's being made, and then to co- commit to continuous reductions in the years ahead. What we saw in the last two weeks was that every country around the world agreed that we have to do much, much more to fight climate change effectively and to begin to set up a dialogue and a mechanism to, for rich countries to aid the poorer countries and to make room for continuous ambition uh, moving forward. So it's a, it's a good start, and there's, of course, a, a very long way to go.
6: George Mambio, your assessment.
13: Well, I wish I could be as optimistic as Michael, but what I see is an agreement with no timetables, no targets, with vague, wild aspirations. I mean, it's almost as if it's now safe to adopt 1.5 degrees centigrade as their aspirational target, now that it is pretty well impossible to reach. I see a lot of backslapping, a lot of self-congratulation, and I see very little in terms of the actual substance that is required to avert climate breakdown. That's what we're facing. We're facing a, an existential crisis for humankind. And the response by the world's leaders has been anything but commensurate with that crisis.
6: What did you feel needed to be done,
13: George? Well, we needed a clear set of binding commitments based around percentage cuts by certain dates. Um, Those were initially in the text, but they got stripped out as the process went along. And instead, we've got um, a phrase, as soon as possible, which could mean anything or it could mean nothing. Michael Bruhn.
3: Yeah, well, that's not accurate. You know, first, the, the targets that were established, first, there are targets. Uh, they were never in the text. What we have is 187 countries so they, they have made commitments until to their carbon. We have, we have India that has committed to install 175 gigawatts of power, clean energy, over the next decade. That's equivalent to about half of the U.S. coal fleet in the United States. African nations have committed to install about double that. China has committed to install as much solar and as much wind as we have coal, natural gas, and nuclear power combined by 2030. The best news that I think we saw from COP is that every country has realized this is a problem. We need to do a lot more. But even better is that the climate movement that helped to secure all of these victories is showing up to work today, and we're not going to let up until we get an economy, a just society that is powered by 100% clean energy. There's a lot of weaknesses in this agreement. If you want to point out what this agreement doesn't do, get in line. You know, there, There's a lot of opportunities to strengthen this agreement, and I agree with George. We have fallen short of what is needed. But what is also true is that our movement has never been more powerful. We have never had this much momentum, turning away from fossil fuels, embracing clean energy, and now we need to finish the job.
0: We just heard clips featuring the Green News report giving a breakdown of the Paris Agreement. Democracy Now! interviewed Dr. James Hansen about my personal favorite policy proposal, a carbon tax with dividend to the citizens. The Young Turks talked about the deal and how our domestic politicians are holding back the world. On the media hosted a discussion trying to sort out whether the agreement was a landmark or a fraud. Democracy Now! touched on the pending criminal probes into Exxon for their climate change cover-up. Our activism for the day is from 350.org as we look forward to ramping up actions for this coming spring. And then finally, Democracy Now! finished off with a discussion between an optimist and a pessimist, just to make sure we're all thoroughly confused as to what to think. Personally, I think it's not unlike basically every other progressive issue, regardless of the size of any given victory or defeat we may face. The next step is always to do more, demand more. You can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now, we'll hear from you.
14: Hi, Jay. This is Charlie from Cincinnati. Uh, I just listened to your episode on the future of work, and I was really struck by the progressive faith sermons piece that you shared. And I kind of wanted to comment and hopefully uh, hear some other perspectives on this. But I've been Catholic all my life, and... I, I've sort of had mixed uh mixed experiences with some Catholics who are very liberal and some who are very conservative. And my parents are among those uh those very conservative Catholics and their kind of message to me has always been, look, the government can't fix anything, the government's not the way to help poor people, you know, so on and so forth. And they've really held up charity as this great way to um, to really reach out and help poor people and make a difference. And I think that's really hit the nail on the head with the idea that, you know, charity's great, but ultimately it's a band-aid and you have to really, you know, change the system. I mean, my thoughts, my response to that has always been, look, we have this, this great giant organization that can reach out and touch the lives of everyone in our country and lots of people around the globe, the government, and, well, you know, why don't we use that to, uh, you know, as a vehicle through which we help people. And I was, I was, I'm curious to hear what other people's experience has been with religion, and whether they've interacted with more people who are on the liberal end of the spectrum or the conservative, and especially this kind of, I guess, conflict between whether government or private charity is the way to go about helping people. Um, I think a lot of times when we see religious people portrayed in the media, or we read news stories, it's sort of, you know, the the Christian right, and um, I think that it's a lot, it's a lot more varied than that, though. And uh, so if anyone else has any sort of perspective on that, you know, there's a lot of religious people in this country, obviously. And uh, if we could get more of them on board with using the government to help people, I think that would that'd be a good thing. So uh, thanks. Keep up the great work. And thank you as always for the show.
8: Hi, Jay. This is Elka in uh, Fort Wayne. And I'm responding to I believe it was Robert in New Hampshire who called About he had a comment about abortion, and um, he said something to the effect of, "You know, perhaps if the anti-choice crowd understood the procedure and if they understood the process, and if they just understood the facts, then maybe they would ratchet down on the the destructive, negative, uh, you know, rhetoric around anti-abortion." but you know my i I thought about that and i I thought how sincere robert sounded and and probably there are many people who feel just as sincere in that belief but the problem is that for the anti-choice crowd anti-abortion crowd the point is the rhetoric the point is to ratchet up the rhetoric um as much as possible because it's not about facts that crowd does not care about facts, that crowd does not care about procedure, they don't care about understanding what the truth is, they care about what their beliefs are, and they care about any message they can get across that will perpetuate and continue the control of women, the control of women's bodies, and the control of women's choices, especially the control of women's repro- re- excuse me, reproductive and sexual choices. So again I really appreciate folks like Robert who who are so sincere in um and you know in, in simply wanting people to know what the truth is but unfortunately <laughs> um I've seen far too many times where the truth and facts it just it it doesn't matter the truth and facts are not the point. Thank you so much Jay. Keep up the good work. Bye.
4: Hey Jay, this is Peter in Seattle and I just listened to your segment on work. I am at work today, I will be at work tomorrow, it's the day after Christmas and all this week I'll be working on a project and, and it just got me thinking about work and what it means and uh, and how it, how it affects me. I guess um, I've had a job since I was 14. I and fifty now, so that's a significant amount of my life that has I have identified myself as a worker, as somebody who works and go to work every day. I'm in construction, and uh, and and like the, the the guy said, it's it's often not fulfilling as a as an activity. I, I I'm working on a project that to me personally is really exciting. It's building mass transit and that's you know I'm, I'm very proud of it it's going to be a great project it's going to do great things but it's not a lot of fun to be at i have to you know it's, it's physically demanding it's isolating and um and it takes me away from you know things i really enjoy doing like gardening and hanging out know, with my kids and
2: uh
4: other sort of activities but it's it sort of got me thinking that this is the thing that's made me who I am, and how I interact with everyone else, and uh, how I see the world, and and, and how uh, my future is going to be sort of played out from here. And it's and from a construction standpoint, it's the. The, the architecture. It's the things. It's the structures that we live in. The infrastructure. The roads. The, the sidewalks. The, the uh, places. The ways. That we, the modes that we get around in. How we communicate. How we interact with each other. That create, create us. Who, are, who we are. And as a as an urban city dweller, I am almost part of it. Like I am like a like a pearl, I suppose, that has been sort of created from a, a little grain of sand inside of an oyster you might say and it is the it's it it's uh, kind of really sort of changed like how i think of i think of myself as an organic free-thinking human being but i really am part of that infrastructure and i'm a little tiny cog in it that makes it move forward and uh and i'm not really really happy with that with that sort of role for myself, and more importantly, the role that I'd be passing on to my children. This is not how my father, for instance, thought of what I would be, how I would be living, you know, from, you know, he thought there would be a lot more sort of change and uh, democratic structures and such, improving and increasing, and it just sort of went the other way, And uh, and the same, you know, with, with how the legacy that I'll leave behind for my children. Is this, is this how I want them to live? Is this, is this the structure that we're going to be working with? And so I just would like to put it out there to all architects, designers, people that have that sort of input to think about, like, do you really want to be, like, collaborating on making a, a better, like, prison for us to be living in? Or do we want to be, like, designing, um, ways that we can be, like, more fulfilled human beings and just, like, be free associating? And, uh, and collaborating and working off of each other and just building something better than sort of crushing people down. Anyway, that's my thoughts. Thanks a lot. Have a good weekend.
0: Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Katie Klubusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. And I have to say, the messages that came in over the holiday break were fantastic. You, you just heard a taste of them. Uh, but there's definitely more to come And really, I mean, this is my favorite kind of conversation, the one where I feel like I can just kind of sit back and let you talk amongst yourselves. And so I'm hoping that the messages we just heard inspired you to want to chime in with your own thoughts, especially if you have anything to add on that very complicated, interesting, nuanced idea of work-life balance and our relationship with our work and how our built world impacts how we see ourselves and our place in society and so on and so on. We have a couple of messages in the queue that are in response to a question I posed before the holidays talking about sort of how malleable we are as individuals and then by extension, how malleable society can be. Uh, So we have thoughts on that coming up. If you want to add your thoughts on that, uh, please do keep those messages coming in uh, and and for now I'm I'm not going to add anything of my own. I think it's it's uh, going well just as it is. Uh, so what I will say today is uh, drum roll we definitely hit our goal between you know, whenever I stopped making the show and then the end of the year. Uh, I had set a goal of trying to get 100 new members in December, and then something weird happened. I I deleted my notes. I actually don't remember how many we had left to go when I started the holiday break. It was, but it wasn't that many. It was in maybe in the teens, maybe in the twenties, but it doesn't matter because before the end of new year's day, we got 30 new signups. And so whatever the goal was, we were trying to get to, we definitely got there. And, and then a few more have come in since then. So a huge thanks to Gene, Kenneth, Jonathan, John, Eric, Augustine, Caitlin, Samantha, Joe, Stephen, Paul, Reese, Cynthia, Ray, Nancy, Eric, Anthony, Evan, Robert, Brian, Alex, Penny, and just for good measure, the ones who uh, signed up in January, because doesn't really matter, who cares? Uh, huge thanks to Corey, Barry, Jack, Fructoso, and Jeremy, I you know. That's that's what it's the bread and butter of this show that, you know, you guys supporting the show is what allows this thing to exist. It's always been that way. It will continue to always be that way. So huge thanks for showing up when I needed you. That is exactly how this is supposed to work and why we should all breathe a sigh of relief, knowing that independent media like this will always exist as long as people want to hear it and are willing to support it. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who have already supported the show through the years by becoming a member or making one-time donations. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. Get even more from us by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway at Out the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C. My name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday. Thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com.
13: And it's a crime shame How we get so trained can see past the sad stories And